السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, as promised, inshallah, today I'll speak on the topic of reverence for the Prophet As Muslims, the Quran and the Hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam don't just place an obligation on us to love the Messenger but rather along with believing in him, honouring him, loving him. The Qur'an categorically places an obligation on those who believe in him to respect him, nay to actually revere him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the verse of the Qur'an, إِنَّا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ شَاهِدًا وَمُبَشِّرًا وَنَذِيرًا لِتُؤْمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَتُعَزِّرُوهُ وَتُوَقِّرُوهُ وَتُسَبِّحُوهُ بُكْرَةً وَأَصِيلًا Addressing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam first, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed we have sent you as a witness, and as a giver of glad tidings, and as a warner. So Allah mentions three of the attributes of the Messenger وسلم, in this verse. Shahid, Mubashir, and Nadir. That, O Messenger, we have sent you as a witness, as a bearer of glad tidings. And as a warner. And then Allah shifts the address from the Messenger وسلم, to the believers, to the creation. لتؤمن, that Allah has sent the Prophet وسلم, thus, with these qualities, with these characteristics and attributes, with these responsibilities. Why? So that you, O people, may believe in Allah and in His Messenger. And so that you may support Him, i.e. the Messenger. And and so that you may revere Him. And so that you may hymn the praise of Allah morning and evening. So this verse quite clearly says that not only are we to believe in the Prophet 
not only were the believers expected to help and assist and support the Prophet Sallallahu but along with love, along with Iman, along with honouring the Prophet Sallallahu believing in him, obeying him, following in his footsteps, Tawqeer, revering the Prophet Sallallahu is a clear obligation on the believers. And this is distinct from love. At times a person can love another, but they can love another whilst being very relaxed in approach, in conduct, in behaviour. And we're not just talking about respect. There's a, there's a difference between respect and reverence. Or, sorry, and reverence. Even in Arabic and even in Islamic terminology, there's a clear difference between hub, the love of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, ikram, honouring the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and ta'zim and meaning revering the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And the Sahaba did all of this. They did believe in him. They did assist him. They did support him. They loved him dearly. They honoured him. But there are very clear examples of how the Sahaba, along with these aforementioned qualities, they actually displayed tawqeer, reverence for the Prophet And that's what I'd like to say a few words about today, how the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum did it, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expected it of them, and corrected them when they failed to do it, and how that tawqeer, that reverence for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, is an obligation upon the believers. In Surah Al-Hujarat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins the surah with the words ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la tuqaddimu bayna yaday llahi wa rasulihi wattaqullaha inna llaha sami'un alim ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la tarfa'u aswatakum fawqa sawtin nabi wa la tajharu lahu bil qawli ka jahri ba'dikum li ba'din an tahbata a'malukum wa antum la tash'urun Allah mentions a few things in these beginning verses of surah al-hujurat and the backdrop to the revelation of these verses is actually related, is connected to this. The failure of some to respect and revere the Prophet as he should be revered. And the first verse, or the first few, the first two, three verses, are about a particular incident in the ninth year of Hijrah, Banu Tamim, one of the great tribes of Arabia, some of their clans came as a delegation to the Prophet, to the Prophet And the delegation of Banu Tamim, only a few of them were Muslim, the majority of them were non-Muslim, the delegation that came. 
On that occasion, when they left, the Prophet wasallam wished to appoint someone over them. So he selected, so he sought the opinion and he consulted the his two close companions, Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah. And he consulted them and sought their opinion as to who should be appointed over them when that delegation was returning. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhumah nominated one individual. Umar radiallahu anhumah nominated someone else. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhumah in front of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said to Umar that you did not nominate this other person except out of spite and in opposition to me. So Umar defended himself and said, no, that wasn't the case. Uh, indeed, I did nominate another person, but it wasn't out of spite and it wasn't in opposition to you. So Abu Bakr radiallahu an insisted that that's what he perceived. Umar radiallahu an insisted otherwise. And unfortunately, in this disagreement, they both raised their voices while sitting in front of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these verses, the beginning verses. And the first verse says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدَيْ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ O believers, do not advance yourselves, do not place yourselves, do not try to surpass and outdo Allah and His Messenger wasallam. Do not advance yourselves before Allah and His Messenger. Do not place yourselves before Allah and His Messenger wasallam. So recognize his position, his rank. Behave with him, in front of him, before him, as well as with him in his absence. With decorum, with honor, with dignity. And indeed, most importantly, with ta'zim and tawqeer, the utmost respect and reverence for the Prophet And this reverence includes a number of things. One is obedience. One is never trying to outdo and surpass the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So if there's a choice that Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and me, then do not place yourselves before Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Even the wives in Surah Al-Ahzab Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam give your wives an ultimate. And one of the reasons was that although on most occasions the wives did behave with the utmost respect and reverence, there were occasions when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam felt aggrieved by their behavior. As a result of which, on one occasion, he contemplated divorcing all of them. So on that occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that after his period of seclusion, Allah told him 
give your wives an ultimatum. And that ultimatum was that you either choose to be with the Prophet ﷺ, who was their husband, accepting all that went with it, the sacrifices, the privations, the struggle. Or, if it's something else that you seek, the worldly life, it's beauty, wealth, because that was actually one of the points of contention between the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and him. It doesn't mean that they were demanding great wealth. Rather, when wealth began pouring in to Medina, the wives felt that they lived in great poverty and with great sacrifice. So the wives felt that since a lot of wealth is pouring into Medina, and the Prophet ﷺ is distributing that wealth to others, giving others estates, orchards, palm, grove, palm groves, entire fields, and large estates. The wives felt that they were entitled to a greater share of wealth than they had previously received. So they weren't asking for the Prophet ﷺ to shower them with wealth, but indeed they were, they were asking for, and with some insistence, increased maintenance. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet wasallam, give them this ultimatum, and the ultimatum was that either you accept your husband the way he is, as he is, and you accept your continued life with him as it was before, with the struggle, with the sacrifice, with the privations, with the same amount of maintenance, allowing him to choose where to spend the wealth. Or, if you want wealth, you want something else, you want the worldly life and its beauty, then you can choose that. The point I wish to make here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't tell them that you choose between the world and your husband, that you choose between the worldly life and your husband, that you choose between this kind of life and your marriage. Allah did not use the word marriage or even your husband. But when Allah gave them even the wives of the Prophet ﷺ ultimatum, the wording of the ultimatum was, say to them, O Messenger of Allah, that if you seek the worldly life and its beauty, then come, I shall give you some wealth and I shall release you. But if you seek otherwise, and the wording wasn't that you seek marriage, your continued marriage, or you seek your husband. No, the wording was, in That if you seek Allah and his messenger and the life of the hereafter. The message to take from this, from these verses here is, and from the wording, is that when Allah gave them an ultimatum and a choice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not phrase it as your husband or your marriage. Allah reminded them that you have to make a choice between what you want and 
Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the life of the hereafter. Even though he was addressing the wives, Allah did not mention marriage, their husband. Allah only mentioned Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because even for the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, yes, he was a husband. But more than a husband, more than a man, he was the messenger of Allah. And that that fact should never escape them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminded the Sahaba radiallahu anhum time and time again when they, if they ever suffered a lapse in this regard. And that's why when Allah says, O oh, believers, do not place yourselves before Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this is the meaning. It's not just about love and respect or reverence. It's about obedience. It's about ultimate choice. That in everything, do not ever place yourselves before Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If there's a choice between you and Allah and His Rasul, and Allah always mentions the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam along with himself. So even when he's telling the wives, he doesn't just say, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says Allah first and then his Rasul, because Rasulullah alayhi salatu wa salam represented Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every way. So in the verses of Surah Al-Hujarat, Allah begins by saying, do not place yourselves before Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That is part of reverence. And then the verse is very clear and explicit. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَرْفَعُوا أَسْوَاتَكُمْ فَوْقَ صَوْتِ النَّبِيِّ O believers, do not raise your voices over and above the voice of the Prophet One, وَلَا تَجْهَرُوا لَهُ بِالْقَوْلِ كَجَهْرِ بَعْدِكُمْ لِبَعْضِ And do not speak to him loudly as you speak loudly to one another. Lest your deeds perish and you don't even realize. Now that was a clear reminder to Abu Bakr and Umar who, as I have just explained, ended up disagreeing in front of the Prophet and in that disagreement they raised their voices. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and undoubtedly the Prophet felt this. But he would never say anything to them directly. He was very bashful. Rasulullah was modest, bashful, full of haya. The Sahaba say of his modesty and his bashfulness that he was and his shyness, that he was more shy and more bashful than a virgin behind her veil. So Rasulullah wouldn't say anything to anyone. Rarely would he say something, especially if it was to do with him personally. If someone disrespected him, someone spoke to him loudly, someone spoke to him offensively, the Sahaba would become enraged. And in fact, in, in his presence, they would at times say something or seek to take some action. And the Prophet ﷺ would console them, calm them down, would pacify them. And he, despite being the victim of the disrespect, of the verbal abuse, he would actually renounce his right 
to retaliate or to seek retribution in any way. And he would say to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum to leave it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not allow this to go unanswered. And there are so many occasions when this happened. And this is all to do with the reverence of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When anyone failed in their respect and in showing reverence to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah would correct them. Time and time again. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in his shyness and bashfulness, he wouldn't say anything. He was extremely shy. He was very sensitive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would defend him. Allah would also comfort and console him. He was very sensitive. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was undoubtedly sensitive. And sensitivity is not a bad trait at all. Normally, those who are soft of nature lenient, shy, bashful, modest. They are extremely sensitive. And sensitivity is not a problem as long as others aren't insensitive. Sometimes, it often happens, people abuse verbally, mentally, emotionally, abuse another person. They make jokes at their expense. And when the victim... expresses their displeasure, even in silence, or their pain and their discomfort is very visible on their face, on their features, then others add insult to injury by saying, oh, you're being extremely sensitive. Sensitivity is not an issue, it's not a problem, as long as others aren't insensitive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Comforted and consoled the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. قَدْ نَعْلَمُ إِنَّهُ لَيَحْزُنَكَ الَّذِي يَقُولُونَ فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُكَذِّبُونَكُ وَلَكِنَّ الظَّالِمِينَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ يَجْحَدُونَ Allah says, O Prophet, we do know that what they say indeed does grieve you. It does hurt you. It saddens you. But know that they do not reject you or call you a liar. Rather, they reject the verses of Allah. So, don't take it personal. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually comforting Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and reminding him that it's not you that they are rejecting. It's the verses of Allah. So don't take it personal. And that's a message. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was extremely shy and bashful. He wouldn't say anything to anyone. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would. Allah would not go, would not allow these episodes to go unanswered. These infringements on his respect to go unaddressed. And it didn't matter who it was. Later on in Surah Al-Hujarat, there's a very famous, well, it's to do with the same period. The Banu Tamim, as I explained, who came as a delegation in the ninth year of Hijrah. Only a few of them, according to some narrations, only two of this 70-so delegation, this delegation consisting of approximately 70 members, according to some narrations, only two of them were Muslim, the others were non-Muslim. When they came to see the Prophet ﷺ, they arrived in the afternoon. The Prophet ﷺ was taking a siesta. He was resting. 
So they arrived and they started shouting, Ya Muhammad, ukhruj ilayna, O Muhammad, come out to us. Come on, come out. So they paid no regard to the privacy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his timings, his need of rest. No, they came. Upon their arrival, they started shouting at him from outside, inside the masjid, but calling out to him. Prophet ﷺ, being of the nature that he was, normally when a person is aroused from deep sleep, or even light sleep, then that is enough to enrage a person. A, a, a person can get angry on their children or even their spouse if they are aroused and from sleep and their sleep is disturbed and disrupted. It really messes up a person. So the Prophet ﷺ, being who he was, Allahu Akbar, he woke up immediately and prepared himself and came out in response and did not say a word to anyone. He actually woke up straight away and came out. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not allow this incident of disrespect and this address to go unanswered. And on behalf of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the harsh words, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُنَادُونَكَ مِنْ وَرَاءِ الْحُجَرَاتِ أَكْثَرُهُمْ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ وَلَوْ أَنَّهُمْ صَبَرُوا حَتَّى تَخْرُجَ إِلَيْهِمْ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ That indeed those who call out to you from behind the chambers, because they arrived in the masjid, and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was resting in the chambers. Right next to the masjid, adjacent to the masjid, in one of the chambers. So Allah says, indeed, those who call out to you from behind the chambers, referring to this delegation of Banu Tamim, most of them have no sense. So Allah called them stupid because of the way they behaved. And Allah continues, and had they remained patient until you came out to them, this would have been far better for them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered it. Regardless of who it was, these were just a de- this was just a delegation from al Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded them in harsh terms. Whether it was Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhumah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded them at the beginning of Surah Al-Hujarat. On occasions, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, what would happen, they would sit with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and they would remain seated with him to the extent that even though he needed to go, he needed to rise and leave to attend to his personal needs, chores, to be mindful of his own time and privacy. The Sahaba anhum, in their sincerity and in their eagerness, they chose to remain with him. So... They wouldn't leave until he would leave. And as long as he remained seated, they would remain seated in the hope of spending as much time with him as possible. But this inconvenienced him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them in Surah Al-Mujadala that يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا قِيلَ لَكُمْ تَفَسَّحُوا فِي الْمَجَالِسِ فَفَسَّحُوا يَفْسَحِ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ and then the second part of the verse is what concerns us here. وَإِذَا قِيلًا شُزُوا فَانْشُزُوا 
Allah says, and when it is said to you, rise, then rise, i.e. depart. Allah will elevate those amongst you who have believed and who have been given knowledge, many ranks. And the reason for mentioning knowledge in this context is that Allah acknowledged their sincerity and their eagerness to learn from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But Allah reminded them that although your sincerity and your eagerness are appreciated, you have to be mindful of the privacy and the needs and the times of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he won't say anything to you, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you that only sit with him as long as he can entertain you. But when you are told to leave, to rise, then you should go. That was the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum in general. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reprimanded, in fact, there's another clear verse, again of Surah Al-Ahzab, in the fifth year of Hijrah, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married Zainab bint Jahsh radiyallahu anha. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prepared a walima the after-wedding meal. And it was a simple affair, but the walima was actually inside his home. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhu came and ate, some came, ate, left. Others lingered after eating the meal. Now imagine, this is inside the house of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam himself. Nowhere else. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam kept on returning to check that have the guests left or not. But the guests were engaged in conversation after the food. And the Prophet ﷺ was so shy, was so bashful that he did not say anything to them, even though it was his own house. Sahaba, unmindful of his need and his timing, they continued to discuss and converse amongst themselves, and then eventually they left. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses saying, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tadkhuru buyutan nabiyya illa an yu'dhana lakum ila ta'am ghayra nazirina inah. Walakin idha du'eetum fadkhuru fa idha ta'imtum fantashiru. Wala musta'isina li hadith. That, O oh believers, do not enter the homes of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam unless you are given permission to and called to food. Without waiting for its time. But when you are called, then enter. And when you have eaten, then disperse. And do not remain engaged in conversation amongst yourselves. And these are the etiquettes, not just for the Sahaba عنهم, with Rasulullah but for all of us. We should be mindful of each other's timings and privacy and needs. We shouldn't be so selfish that we call people, either at their home or even by phone, and expect them to answer immediately. The teaching of Islam is you knock thrice. And the people within the house are under no obligation whatsoever to open the door. So even if they are inside the house and you know they are in and you knock once, twice, thrice and they don't answer 
you shouldn't feel offended. It may be their needs, their privacy, their timings. Maybe they're indisposed. Whatever the case, you knock thrice. You seek permission to enter thrice. And if you receive no answer, then you leave. Just like Umar radiallahu anh, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anh, knocks on the door thrice. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh was engaged in something. So Abu Musa radiallahu anh left. After his third knocking and after he had left, Umar radiallahu anh came out. And he inquired as to who had knocked. They said Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, call him. He was called. So he said, why did you knock and then leave? So Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu said, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, we have been commanded by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to knock thrice, to seek permission thrice, and if we receive no answer, to leave. So Umar radiyallahu anhu said, substantiate this, corroborate this, prove to me that you, indeed the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam heard this and said this. Sorry, said this and you heard this. So Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu went and there was a group of Sahaba radiyallahu anhum seated. So he told them what had just happened. So they said, take the youngest. They pointed to Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, who was the youngest. They said, take him to corroborate your hearing this from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And indeed the purpose was twofold. None of them wanted to face Umar radiyallahu anhu. Not one of them. And Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu was the youngest. So they said, take him. But there was another lesson in that, which is that if even the youngest amongst them, all of them knew and all of them could corroborate what Umar radiyallahu anhu, sorry, what Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu was saying. But if they could demonstrate that even the youngest amongst them, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, heard this, then what great proof could there be? So Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu anhu went with Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu and he corroborated what Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu was saying. Can you imagine? Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu anhu actually said on that occasion, he accepted and he said, I had no doubt, but I just wanted to ensure that nobody in future would exploit these opportunities and so quickly ascribe to the Messenger وسلم, what they shouldn't be attributing to him. That people should be careful about what they attribute to the Messenger And then he commented that we, referring to himself, that you gain the knowledge addressing Abu Musa and Abu Sa'id al-Khudri and he said, you gain the knowledge, but we, we were distracted by the dunya and the world. He lamented his lack of being able to acquire this knowledge and as much knowledge as he thought that Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and Abu Sa'id al-Khudri and others had acquired. So we knock thrice, we ring. It doesn't matter even if we know that the other person is in. They are under no obligation to answer our call. And we shouldn't feel offended. We should leave. We should be mindful of people's timings and their privacy. This is just one of the etiquettes. And the verse actually says, Do not enter the homes unless you are granted permission. 
and ila ta'am and if you are given permission to enter for food ghayra nadhirina inah without waiting for its time this is another etiquette which is when you go to people's homes when you visit them be mindful of their times of rest of work of food do not become imposing in that you arrive at the time of food you will embarrass them you will place them under an obligation they may not have sufficient food to offer you and the guests and you will embarrass them and yourselves so ghayra nadhirina ina do not enter the homes do not visit the homes without permission and if you are called to food then it should be such that the invitation is genuine ghayra nadhirina ina without you waiting for its time the time of food so do not turn up at breakfast lunch brunch or tea time or dinner be careful be mindful furthermore if you are ever invited to food then as the sahaba radiyallahu anhum told fadkhulu enter fa idha ta'imtum munshiriten fantashiru disperse and do not remain engaged in conversation this will burden the family they have work to do cleaning up to do they have to retire as well they've been busy preparing food for you and if you remain seated engaged in conversation this may be cumbersome and burdensome for the family and disruptive unless of course they make it very clear that's different so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the sahaba radiyallahu anhum this and then this is a part which i wish to mention immediately thereafter allah says in dhalikum kana yu'dhi an-nabiyya fa yastahi minkum wallahu la yastahi min al-haqq indeed this would inconvenience and hurt the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but he was shy of you and allah does not shy away from the truth so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly mentions that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was too shy and bashful on these occasions but allah azza wa jalla does not shy away from the truth there are so many such occasions in fact it wasn't just to do with other sahaba radiyallahu anhum all the delegations that visited him of whom allah said most of them are do not understand even the wives of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam if they ever spoke out of turn or behaved in a manner that wasn't befitting their status as wives of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and that in any way was to be perceived as lacking respect and reverence for the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam then allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even addressed the wives in the strongest of terms earlier on i mentioned how allah told him to give his wives an ultimatum but in surah at-tahrim allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressed two wives and although their names aren't mentioned we know who they are they were aisha and hafsa radiyallahu anhuma and imagine these are the two daughters of abu bakr and umar radiyallahu anhum his two closest companions his two closest confidants his two fathers in law both successors to him and the leaders of the muslims after rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam the sahaba radiyallahu anhum unanimously recognized abu bakr as-siddiq radiyallahu anhu 
And after him, they unanimously recognized Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu Even these two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala corrected them and reprimanded them. And their daughters, Hafsa and Aisha radiallahu anhuma, despite the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's love for Hafsa, uh, Aisha radiallahu anha, indeed, he loved his wives. But it was well known that he loved Aisha radiallahu anha more than the others. So much so that Umar radiallahu anhu, when... Subhanallah. He wants, his wife once spoke to him in a manner which he disapproved of. So he reprimanded her. So she said to him, You reprimand me for speaking to you thus. When the wives of the Prophet, they speak to him in a certain manner. And at times they turn away from him for part of the day, meaning give him, as they say, a cold shoulder, the cold shoulder. So Umar radiallahu anhu said, is that true? Allahu Akbar. His words were, إِذَنْ خَابَتْ وَخَسِرَتْ Meaning in then, they have, she, referring to his daughter, she has lost and perished. So he said, I grabbed my overclothes, and I went immediately to my daughter's house. And I said to her, O oh Hafsa, is it true that you and the other wives, you speak back to the Prophet ﷺ and you speak in a certain manner to him and that some of you turn away from him for part of the day? She said, yes. One of the words that Umar said to Hafsa on that occasion was, O oh Hafsa, do not let the Prophet ﷺ's love for your companion, meaning Aisha, Deceive you. I.e., if he tolerates certain things from Aisha, it's because of his extreme love for her. So do not let his love for her deceive you in any way. So the Prophet ﷺ loved Aisha radiallahu anha, and in his love for her, her being the youngest, and her being the daughter of Abu Bakr radiallahu indeed Aisha radiallahu anha was very strong minded. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Tahreem. Allah says, addressing both Aisha and Hafsa radiyallahu anhuma. Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. He was once, he was with the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he was passing by. And he heard Aisha radiallahu anha speak to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in a manner which he disapproved of. So he scolded her. And not only did he scold her, but he actually went for her. He actually went for her in his anger because of the way she was speaking to the Prophet sallallahu so the Prophet ﷺ physically came in between him and Abu and his daughter Aisha radiallahu anha. He did. He came in between them. And he protected her. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anha left. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to Aisha radiallahu anha, Did you not see how I saved you, how I protected you, how I came in between you and your father? So later, Abu Bakr radiallahu was going past and he saw that things had calmed down. So he came in 
And then, you see, the, the, re, the first time, what had happened is that, that he wasn't just passing by. They had, they had called him to, because he was mediating between them. They had a disagreement. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anh, being the father, he tried to mediate between them. And in that conversation, Aisha radiallahu anha, whilst pressing her point, she began speaking to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in a particular manner. So he rose and he went for her. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam protected her. Later, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when he visited them again, things were fine. So, and they were both actually quite jovial and cordial with each other, meaning the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Aisha radiallahu anha. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu actually said to both of them, include me in your peace, just as you included me in your war earlier. So Aisha radiallahu anha, even Umar radiallahu anhu said to Hafsa, that, oh Hafsa, do not be deceived by the, the Prophet's love for Aisha, by your, uh, his love for your companion Aisha. Do not let that deceive you. And indeed, and Allahu Akbar, the prescience, the foresight, the wisdom of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu He said to Hafsa there and then, Asa rabbuhu in talaqakun, an yubdiluhu azwajan khayrin minkun, muslimatin mu'minatin qanitatin ta'ibatin abidat, sa'ihatin thayyibatin wa abkara. This was just a father speaking to his daughter in her home. This was a father scolding his daughter. This was a father in his passion and his anger, reprimanding his daughter. These were the words that naturally flowed from the tongue of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala later actually revealed those words, those words verbatim as part of Surah Al-Tahreem. He was warning his daughter Allah, and he was telling her, do not let your, the Prophet's love for your companion Aisha deceive you. But Allah actually took his words verbatim and warned both Aisha and Hafsa. And the words were, إِن تَتُوبَا إِلَى اللَّهِ فَقَدْ سَغَدْ قُلُوبُكُمَا وَإِن تَظَاهَرَا عَلَيْهِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ مَوْلَاهُ وَجِبْرِيلُ وَصَالِحُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ ظَهِيرٌ Allah says, if you both repent to Allah, then that should be so. For indeed your hearts were wayward, or your hearts inclined. Meaning to something undesirable, negative in respect of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, i.e. in your hearts were inclined or misinclined to treating, to were inclined to mis, to treating him in a manner that didn't befit him. فَقَدْ سَغَدْ And then Allah warns both of them. وَإِنْتَظَاهَرَ عَلَيْهِ And if you, Aisha and Hafsa, if you both come together against the Prophet ﷺ, then know that Allah is his guardian. And Jibreel and the pious believers. And after them, the angels stand on their back in guard. 
Then Allah mentions the words of Umar radiyallahu an, Asa rabbuhu in talaqakun, that if he divorces you, then it is, then perhaps your Lord. And wherever the Qur'an says perhaps in respect of Allah, it means definitely. If, if he divorces you, then his Lord will replace you with wives that are far better than you. And then Allah mentions the attributes of those wives. This final verse where that was, is, is, constitutes the words of Umar radiallahu The point I wish to make here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not tolerate any disrespect or lack of reverence on the part of anyone in respect of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And even though he was shy and bashful and modest and remained silent and never said anything, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never allow these lapses to go unaddressed. Whether it was the non-Muslim delegation, Allah said of them, most of them do not understand. Whether it was Umar and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhumah, Allah corrected them and reprimanded them. Whether it was the collective Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Allah corrected them. And even if it was the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah actually warned them. And in, in these few examples is a lesson for us. That we can't just say we love the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then love him in a relaxed manner. No, along with the obligation of believing in him, along with the obligation of loving him even more than we love ourselves, along with the obligation of honoring him and respecting him. Tawqeer doesn't just mean respect. Tawqeer means reverence. We should allow ourselves to be filled with awe of the Messenger because he represents Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And everything that's connected to him, we should be in awe of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, in awe of his teachings, in awe of his sunnah, in awe of his words. And going back to the verses of Surah Al-Hujurat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tarfa'u aswatakum fawqa sawtin nabi. O believers, do not raise your voices above the voice of the prophets. And do not speak to him loudly as you speak to one another lest your deeds perish and you don't even realize. Now, of course, that was a primarily a reference to Abu Bakr and Umar anhumah, who did raise their voices, but who regretted it. It was a lapse on their part, in their anger, in their passion, in their disagreements with each other. They momentarily became neglectful of their presence in the company of the Messenger So they allowed themselves to raise their voices. Allah warned them. And after that, of course, there was a case before as well, but even after that, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi relates from Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu that he says Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu would speak to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam so softly, even though he had a loud, booming voice. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam always had to make him repeat himself in order to understand what he said. That's how softly he would speak to him. Out of fear that if I raise my voice again, this would be included in the prohibition of the verse. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he would say to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Ya Rasulullah, after this, 
I will only ever speak to you like a confident whispers to a confident. So you speak to him in whispers. And this ruling of not raising one's voice over the voice of the Messenger وسلم, is applicable even after his departure from this world. So when we visit the Prophet وسلم, and present ourselves for Salat and Salam at his resting place in Medina, in the masjid, near him, around him, we must observe the utmost respect and silence. Umar once heard two men speaking loudly in the masjid of the Prophet So he actually came out and said to them, where are you two from? So they said, we are from Ta'if. That's far away. To the southeast of Mecca. So... Umar said to them, if you had been from Medina, I would have inflicted pain on both of you. Punished you and inflicted pain on you. And then he reminded them, do not raise your voices over the voice of the Prophet Do not raise your voices in his presence. That is, this is completely distinct and different from love, from honor, and from respect, completely different. This is Allah's obligation that he has placed on the believers to revere the Prophet ﷺ, to revere him, to revere his teachings. And Allah then continues, And do not address him, do not speak, sorry, do not speak loudly to him as you would speak loudly to one another. Lest your Deeds perish and you don't even realize. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that if someone ever speaks once loudly in front of the Messenger وسلم, then instantly their deeds would perish. What this actually means is, uh, it's a very subtle point. Once a person becomes disrespectful, then each incident, each occurrence of lack of respect, lack of reverence, opens a way for a subsequent occurrence of lack of respect. And each instance of disrespect then becomes cumulative. And eventually this may lead to a person losing their faith, losing their deeds. Respect is an integral part of Islam. We respect Allah, His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In fact, we have been commanded to revere Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa So one should not and cannot say that I love the Messenger of Allah. How can, but at the same time, be disrespectful? How can a person claim to truly love the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and yet lack reverence and respect for his teachings, for his hadith, for his instructions and commandments, for his sunnah? There's a difference. Sometimes a person can be weak. Out of weakness, a person doesn't do what they should be doing in terms of obeying Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa fails to fulfill their obligations of religion. They succumb to temptation. They are weak. That's one thing. But as long as they remain humble, 
despite their weakness, and they even acknowledge their weakness, there is great hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through their humility and modesty, and their acceptance and acknowledgement of their weakness, Allah will guide them to him again. But if they compound their disobedience with arrogance, and refuse to acknowledge their weakness, and worse still, if they fail to follow, let's say they fo- fail to follow a sunnah of the Prophet Fine, that's between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if they mock the sunnah, if they disrespect the ways of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they insult his memory in any way, whilst claiming to love him, in the hope that by loving him, we are guaranteed his intercession. No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not allow that even for his wives. How would Allah allow it for anyone else? And this obligation of revering the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is such that it includes his words, his sunnah. And the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum truly revered him. They did. When Allah says, do not speak, raise your voices and do not speak to him loudly, as you speak loudly to one another. Following the revelation of this verse, Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas al-Khazraji radiyallahu anhum, one of the Ansari companions, he was very loud of voice. So the Prophet ﷺ would actually appoint him on occasions to announce things or speak on his behalf because he was very loud of voice, naturally. So after the revelation of this verse, once Prophet ﷺ found him missing, so he inquired that, where's Thabit ibn Qais? So the Sahaba, one of the Sahaba anhum said, I will go and find out, O Messenger of Allah. So he went looking for him, arrived at his house. There he found Thabit ibn Qais, seated in, in his home with his head lowered and weeping. So he said to him, what is it with you? The Messenger of Allah وسلم, is looking for you. So Thabit ibn Qais said, when I heard the, ver- the, the verse and the words of Allah, that, O oh, believers, do not raise your voices above the voice of the Prophet, Sallallahu alayhi wasallam And do not speak to him loudly As you speak to one another Lest your deeds perish I am naturally loud of voice I feared that this verse actually refers to me That's why I have distanced myself And I sit here weeping So the Sahabi radiyallahu an Went back to the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wasallam To relay this to him Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam Said to him Go back and give Thabit ibn Qais the glad tidings, that the Messenger of Allah gives you the glad tidings. You are not one of the people referred to in the verse, rather you are one of the people of Jannah. So Anas radiallahu actually says in one narration that we would say amongst ourselves, when we would see Thabit ibn Qais, that he is a man who is walking amongst us, yet we know he is one of the people of Jannah. Because of his respect and reverence, for the Prophet They actually feared that they would be included in this verse. Sahaba anhum revered the Prophet It wasn't just love. There's a great difference between the two. 
Loving him is one thing, revering him is, a, is, is another. Al-Bara ibn Azib radiyallahu an says, one of the famous companions, he says, at times, I wanted to ask the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa a question. Abu Ya'la al-Mawsli relates this hadith in his musnad. He says, Al-Bara ibn Azib radiyallahu an, that I actually wanted to ask the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa a question. But out of sheer awe of him, because of the awe I had, I was overwhelmed by his awe. Out of sheer awe of him, I delayed asking him that question for two years. For two years, Al-Bara ibn Azib couldn't pluck up the courage to ask the Prophet ﷺ a question. This is why this idea that we have, that the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, in fact, I once read, uh, somewhere that, uh, well, not somewhere, but I read in a book written by a Muslim author that the Prophet ﷺ was very relaxed with his companions and the atmosphere around the Prophet ﷺ wasn't the atmosphere that we see in Muslim gatherings with students and their teachers. Rather, he was very relaxed. He would joke with them. They would laugh with him. He was extremely relaxed, subhanAllah. And they could ask him what they wanted, when they wanted. That, that, that may be, wallahu adam, but that's not the picture you find in the hadith. That's not the picture you find in the seerah. Imam Tirmidhi and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayma, both relate a hadith from Anas ibn Malik, radiyallahu an, who says that the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he would come out, not one amongst the entire congregation would raise their eyes at him, to look at him, except for two people, Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhumah. Only Abu Bakr and Umar radiyallahu anhumah would lift their gaze at him. They would look at him, he would look at them, they would smile at him, and he would smile at them. But with the exception of Umar and Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhumah, none of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum even lifted their gaze to him. Urut ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi in the Hadith of Bukhari, he relates. He was a non-Muslim at the time, in the 60th of Hijrah, at the time of Hudaybiyyah. He came on behalf of the Quraysh to negotiate with the Prophet ﷺ. And he saw the Prophet ﷺ in the midst of his companions, and he observed how they treated him. And he went back and he related it to the Quraysh. He said to them, O oh my people, I have, because he was a very wise person, Urut ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi, very diplomatic individual, and he had actually been sent as an emissary on, on the part of the Arabs to various royal courts. So he reminded his people, he said, Oh my peoples, addressing the Quraysh, I have visited the royal courts of Abyssinia, of Persia, of Rome. Yet... I have never seen any group of people or any subject revere their great one and their leader as I have seen the companions of Muhammad revere Muhammad. And then he went on to describe what he had seen. Remember, he was a non-Muslim at the time. And he relayed this to the Quraysh. That he says, when he speaks, they rush to bid, do his bidding. When he speaks, they all fall silent to listen to him. When he 
spits, yes, actually spits his saliva. They, they jostle with each other to catch his saliva, and when they do, they anoint their faces and their bodies with his saliva. And when he performs the ablution, when he does wudu, again they jostle with each other to catch the drops of water that fall from his limbs, and again they anoint themselves with those droplets of water. So he says, I have never seen anyone in any of the royal courts. You see, others in the royal courts, there was a protocol. Even if people hated their leader, their emperor, their king, out of sheer fear and by imposition, they were compelled to prostrate to them, to bow to them, to observe royal protocol of the court and behave with them in a certain way. And these were in the royal courts where emperors and kings were often seen as gods, demigods, semigods. But in the case of Rasulullah this was not in a royal court. This was in the desert camp of Hudaybiyah a few miles from Mecca. The Sahaba without obligation, without imposition, out of love and of their own volition, they revered the Prophet ﷺ in that manner. When Abu Ayyub al-Ansari when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, and he, he was the fortunate one to be able to host the Prophet ﷺ in his home. He lived in a simple abode. And the Prophet ﷺ lodged with him for a few days until his own house was built. And the masjid was built. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari was a fortunate one who got to host the Messenger So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and his wife, Umm Ayyub, they both moved upstairs to the first floor. And we have to remember, these were simple dwellings. They weren't like our ground floor and first floor. But it was, like a, it was just like a, a, quite a thin barrier between the uh, lower ground and the upper ground. So, and the upper level. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and his wife, they moved upstairs. The first night passed, next morning, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari came to the Prophet and said, Ya Rasulullah, my wife and I, I and Umm Ayyub, we did not sleep a wink all night long. So he said, why? So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari said, Ya Rasulullah, we knew you were, res- you were resting downstairs. We did not move out of fear that if we moved, this would have created some movement. The movement would have caused some dust to fall from the ceiling on you. That we would have inconvenienced you in any way. So because of this consciousness, she and I remained awake all night long. So Prophet wasallam said to Abu Ayyub, Oh Abu Yub, there's no need for you to do this. I do not burden yourself with this worry. And in another narration, it's mentioned that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu an, after the first night or so, or maybe one or two nights, he said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Ya Rasulullah, I cannot accept this. It grieves me that you be downstairs and I am above you upstairs. That you are downstairs and I am above you, upstairs. It does not befit you. And it grieves me 
that how can I be over and above the Messenger of Allah? So Ya Rasulullah, I humbly request you, let us switch places. You sleep above and I sleep downstairs uh, with, with my family. So the Prophet said to him, Oh Abu Ayyub, it's actually easier for you upstairs because I have many visitors. So the visitors, can, I can entertain them downstairs without you being disturbed upstairs. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari accepted. And then, Allahu Akbar, in the narration of Hakim, Imam Tabarani relates this hadith, and Hakim also, and Hakim, uh, Imam Tabarani says that uh, in his narration, uh, Imam Hakim and Tabarani both relate this hadith, parts of it. But anyway, in one narration it continues that Abu Ayyub al-Ansari added that what they would do is that they would cook food for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then they wouldn't eat themselves, and they would send the food down. He would eat, and then he would send back the same plate or tray of food. So with great relish and eagerness, Abu Ayyub and his wife, Ummu Ayyub al-Ansariyan radiyallahu anhuma, they would wait for the food of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and they wouldn't just eat it, they would actually inspect the food to see where there were traces of his noble fingers. And then they would eat specifically from that one area, where they could detect the noble traces of the noble fingers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and then they would eat specially from there. So one day, a tray of food came back, back up untouched. So they inspected it, and they said, he hasn't touched this. So with great worry, he went downstairs and said, Ya Rasulullah, you never ate. So he said, Oh Abu Ayyub, you've added onions. And onions have a very, obviously, strong smell. And he said, because I speak to Jibreel, and therefore I dislike these strong odors emanating from my mouth. And so he didn't touch the food. He said, you eat but subhanAllah, that was a reverence, not just love, but reverence of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And there are countless such stories of how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum behaved with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that remained the case after the Sahaba radiallahu anhum too. And especially when it came to his words, now we no longer have the benefits of the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam as the Sahaba had it. But... After him, we have still been commanded to revere his words, his sunnah, his memory. And indeed, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did it. We, Allahu Akbar, we are so casual. When it came to the earliest scholars, and even members of his own family, Imam Malik ibn Anas, rahimahullah, it said that when he would relate hadith, Whenever the name of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was mentioned, Imam Malik rahmatullahi alayhi would bow his head. A change would come over him and his color would change. Every mention of the name of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had that effect on Imam Malik. And all day long he would be teaching, preaching, advising, Fiqh and mainly hadith as well. Can you imagine how many times a day he would hear or mention the name of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and each time a change would come over him. His color would become pale. So his students said, May Allah have mercy on you. 
Why do you allow yourself to undergo such change? We pity. So Imam Malik said, if you pity me, then how would you be with my teacher, Imam Muhammad ibn al-Munkadir? When his color just wouldn't change, he wouldn't just bow his head. Whenever our teacher, Imam Muhammad ibn al-Munkadir, would hear a hadith, he would begin weeping. Every hadith he would weep. Every mention of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he would weep. Imam Malik then even said of Imam Ja'far, rahimahullah, that our teacher, Imam Ja'far, whenever he, even though he was a man who was very humorous, so he used to joke a lot, Imam Ja'far. And this is remarkable. On the one hand, he was a very light-hearted character. So he would joke. He was very jovial. But despite his jovialness, despite his humor, whenever the name of Rasulullah was mentioned or the hadith of Rasulullah was mentioned, a change came over him and his color would change. And Imam Malik says of Imam Muhammad ibn Munkadir that when we would see our teacher weeping in this manner, we would pity him, we would have compassion for him. That was their approach just to the memory of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And when he came to hadith, and I'll end with this, it wasn't just his name, his memory, his words. Respect for the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When people show respect to the Qur'an, they are not worshipping the Qur'an. It's because of that connection. These are the words of Allah. This is the Qur'an. This is the book, the Mus'haf, that contains the kalam and the speech of Allah. So it deserves respect. And what great proof could there be than the fact that in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Sahaba, Allah was addressing the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, Ya ayyuhal ladheena amunu la tuhillu sha'a'ir Allahi wa la shahr al-haram wa la al-hadiyya wa la al-qala'id. O believers, do not profane, do not consider lawful, i.e. do not profane, the symbols of Allah, and nor the sacred month, and nor the garlands. So what's the verse in reference to? I'll be very brief. The Sahaba anhum were very angry that they, they were prevented from the house of Allah, from Mecca. And yet other tribes were allowed free access and entry into Mecca because they were the allies of the Quraysh. So some of the Sahaba عنهم, wanted to attack some of the allied tribes of the Quraysh who were given free access. Allah warned them, even because they were pilgrims. Allah warned them. And pilgrims in those days, uh, more so than now, they, they would take sacrificial animals with them on their journey of pilgrimage they would drive these animals with them and then they would sacrifice these animals upon the completion of their pilgrimage in the vicinity of Mecca. So these sacrificial animals are, were known as hadi. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not profane the symbols of Allah or the sacred month and nor the sacrificial animals nor the gardens. Now, how were these sacrificial animals known to be sacrificial animals? Because when the Arabs would drive these animals, everyone 
would recognize them that these are sacrificial animals so they would be respected no one would harm them in any way even if they weren't guarded one of the ways in which the arabs would mark these animals as being sacrificial animals destined for the house of allah and being animals of pilgrimage is that they would put garlands around their necks and these garlands wouldn't necessarily be of flowers dry leaves yes dry leaves uh, string bark even old shoes and sandals so allah subhanahu in fact ummul mu'minin aisha radiyallahu anha she says that we garlanded the sacrificial animals of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and one of the garlands of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was also sandals so sandals were struck can you imagine allah explicitly says in the quran that do not profane do not consider unlawful i.e. consider sacred and as part of that sanctity do not harm do not disrespect not only those who are on pilgrimage not only the sacred month not only the symbols of allah not only the sacrificial animals even the garlands of bark dry leaves string and old shoes and sandals around the necks of these animals do not even disrespect or profane these garlands so if allah has commanded us not to disrespect them how can we disrespect the quran or the hadith of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and not just the books of hadith the spirit of the hadith i've mentioned this before and i'll end with this all the ulama of islam the earlier ones allah their love for rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and not just love their reverence for him extended to his words to his memory to his name and this is why in a verse of the quran allah says la taj'alu du'a'a ar-rasul baynakum ka du'a'i ba'dikum ba'dha do not make the call of the messenger like your call to each other i just as we say to one another o zaid o bakr o umar do not call out to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam by saying oh muhammad the only people who would say oh muhammad were the bedouin and the bedouin were bedouin they really were subhanallah one of them came to the masjid and said to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam oh muhammad said salam to him well he he actually just greeted him and then he said oh muhammad and then he prayed to allah this is the bedouin he said oh allah allahumma arhamni wa muhammada wa la tarham ma'ana ahada oh allah have mercy on me and muhammad and don't have mercy on anyone else besides us so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said to him oh you you've restricted the vast mercy of allah then that same bedouin went to one side and began urinating in the masjid so it's the same bedouin this is not known actually most people think that these are two separate hadith it's actually the same bedouin who did this so but the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam told the sahaba radiyallahu anhum leave him and then once he had finished he said take a bucket of water and clean it so the bedouin were like that they were the only ones who would say oh muhammad otherwise the sahaba radiyallahu anhum as allah warned them do not call out to the prophets as you call out to one another allah has never done it nowhere in the quran has allah said ya muhammad Oh ya Ahmed nowhere Allah has said to the other prophets ya Nuh and ya Musa 
Indeed, Allah has called out to the other messengers by their name. Rasulullah alayhi salatu Allah has respected him. Allah has never said, Ya Muhammad, Ya ayyuhal nabi, Ya ayyuhal muzzammil, Ya ayyuhal muddathir. Beautiful names are one wrapped in a mantle, or one wrapped in a shroud. O Prophet, Ya ayyuhal rasul, O Messenger. And Allah has only mentioned him by name five times in the Qur'an, four times as Muhammad, and once as Ahmed. Every single mention by name is because of a particular context and a reason. Otherwise, he has never addressed him directly. So the Sahaba never used to say, Ya Muhammad. They would speak to him by saying, Fidaka Abi wa Ummi Ya Rasulullah, may my father and my mother be your ransom, O Messenger of Allah. So the Sahaba revered him in person, and after the Sahaba, the others revered him in memory, and especially his hadith, his words. SubhanAllah. And I'll end with this. Some of the greatest imams of hadith. We all know Imam Bukhari. Yes. But, and you often hear me mention Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was one of the teachers of Bukhari. And Imam Bukhari passed away in 256 Hijri. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal passed away 15 years before in 241 Hijri. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, his book, his collection of hadith, contains over to approximately 27,000 hadith. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal had two other companions. Other companion scholars, but there were two famous companions. One was Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in. So we know how Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal is. The other was Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal said of Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in that any hadith that Yahya ibn Ma'in doesn't know is not a hadith. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal would actually consult Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in on many things. And they were very close and respectful of each other. And the other was Imam Ali ibn Madini. He was a towering figure. Again, not many of us may know about Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in or Ali ibn Madini. Ali ibn Madini was such that Imam Bukhari says, Imam Bukhari was very confident, extremely confident, even as a child. He was 10 years old, and once a muhaddith was narrating a hadith, and as a child of 10 years, he corrected the teacher. And he actually said to the teacher, go back and check your notes. Respectfully, not rudely, he said it respectfully. Because the teacher said, no, he said, no, I'm sure it's this. If you do, please check your notes. So he did. Then the teacher actually corrected his notes from the memory of Bukhari when he was a 10-year-old child. So Imam Bukhari was extremely confident. One of the reasons for his confidence was that for him, it was like he was reading from a book. So if a teacher makes a mistake and you are looking at a book, even respectfully, you can say, teacher, it's not what it says here. Because you're looking at it. That was Bukhari. For him, the hadith were as though he was actually looking at them. He had a photographic memory. And uh, I'll mention it some other time, but Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani, 
when he narrates the incident of Imam Bukhari, hearing 100 hadith, 10 10 hadith by 10 different scholars, all with their chains of narration mixed up and attached to other texts. And they tested him by every one of them saying, do you know, what do you say of this hadith? Now the hadith was correct, but the chain of narration was incorrect because it belonged to another hadith. All Bukhari would say, la arifu, la arifu, la arifu, I don't know it, I don't know it, I don't know it. So then he mentioned 10 hadith, sat down. The second one stood up, mentioned 10 mixed hadith, sat down. In this way, 10 of them went through 100 hadith. So Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani is the famous commentary or commentator of Bukhari. He died in 852 Hijri in the 9th century of Hijra. So Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani says that then what happened after all 100 hadith had been read to him incorrectly? Bukhari mentioned, you said this hadith first. And I said it's incorrect because that's an incorrect version. This is a correct version. And it went through all hundred. Ibn Hajjah says, it's not surprising that Bukhari knew the 100 correct versions of the hadith. Ibn Hajjah says, it's not surprising at all. Why should it be surprising? Because he's a hafiz of hadith. He said, where we should salute him and bow to him, where we should honor him is that in an instant, 100 hadith incorrectly transmitted, he was able to memorize all of them, incorrectly, just by listening. So for him, it was like he was reading a book. He had a photographic memory. So Imam Bukhari, as a child who would correct his teachers, was extremely confident. But he says, مَسْتَصْغَرْتُ نَفْسِي عِنْدَ أَحَدٍ I have never considered myself small in front of anyone except Ali ibn al-Madini. Imagine who Bukhari was, and he says, the only person who made me feel small was Ali ibn al-Madini. So imagine these three, Imam Ali ibn al-Madini, Yahya ibn Ma'in, Ahmad ibn Hanbal. So one of the ulama says that we would regularly see Imam Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Qattan, one of the greatest imams of hadith, who died in 198 Hijri. Imam Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Qattan, he would come to the masjid, pray his Asr Salah, and after Asr Salah, he would go and lean against the wall. And ulama would stand in front of him, ulama, including Yahya ibn Ma'in, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, and Ali ibn al-Madini. And they'd ask him questions about hadith. He would be the only one seated, and all of these ulama, despite being who they were, would be standing. And out of sheer respect for him and out of awe of him, they would not sit down. And he would not tell them to sit down. And they would remain like this all the way from Asr to Maghrib Salah. Regularly. That's out of respect and love for hadith. And... This just reminded me of one more thing. When I said filled with awe, and I'll, I'll end with this, Amr ibn al-As, and the companion of Rasulullah, who didn't embrace Islam till very late, till the seventh year of Hijrah or the eighth year of Hijrah. Amr ibn al-As says that there was no one greater in my sight than the Messenger of Allah. And 
If you were to ask me to describe him to you, I would not be able to describe him to you because I would never look at him fully out of awe of him. And I end with that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a tawfiq. Not only to love Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but also to recognize the obligation of revering him, of expressing reverence for him, his memory, his name, his message, his sunnah, his hadith, his words, just as Allah commanded everyone to do so in the Qur'an. And I'll finish with the verse that I began with. Allah says, O Messenger, indeed we have sent you as a witness and as a bearer of glad tidings and as a warner. And then Allah switches the address to the people so that you all may believe in Allah and in his Messenger and so that you may support him and and so that you may revere him and so that you may praise Allah morning and evening. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashidu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.